Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lentesta, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, February 1st, 2021. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, we have a special guest. Seth Kuberski, author of The Unofficial Guide to Universal Orlando, is here to talk about what we can expect with Universal this year, how to make the most of your visit, and what it's like to write a travel guide in a pandemic. Let's get started by bringing in the man who wonders whether Lego people know they live in homes made of their own flesh. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Oh, thank you for that nightmare. <laughs> and as long as we're, t- we're talking Legoland quickly here, did you see where they're building covers over you know, the, the mini Legoland area for uh, the Florida park? It gets hot in Florida uh, during summer, Jim, and I'm sure the heat is doing the Lego plastic no favors. Oh, no doubt. And given the nature of this park, you know, not only the heat, but also the Florida, the lovely Florida rain, and the fact that this will now allow these parts of the park to stay open. Yep. Other bit of Florida, or, or excuse me, Legoland-related news. I don't know if you did see that the Legoland for New York out in Hudson Valley up in Goshen uh, looks like it will, in fact, open this year. They just finished building their New York-themed entrance to the park. I didn't see that. Yeah. Obviously, last year, supposed to open, pandemic changed, all that, and they're hopeful for opening it in 2021, but they just released time-lapse photography of the the construction of the entrance to the park. So, you know, here's hoping we actually get to see that this year. Where, where New York is it? It is in Goshen, which they describe as being in the beautiful Hudson River Valley. For those of you who are Washington Irving fans, that's also where the Headless Horseman lurks. But I'm sure no small children will lose their heads. I hope. <laughs> that's fabulous. Okay. And let's welcome to the show Seth Kuberski. Seth is the author of The Unofficial Guide to Universal Orlando, the Unofficial Guide to Disneyland, and The Unofficial Guide to Las Vegas, as well as contributing to The Unofficial Guide to Walt Disney World. How's it going, Seth? It's going great. Thank you so much to both of you. Uh, it's an honor to be on the Disney dish. And, you know, heck with Universal, let's talk Legoland. I'm excited because I just got a media invite. They are bringing back their water skiing show. Back when the park was Cypress Gardens, it was a big part of uh, kind of Florida history, the, the pyramids of water skiers. And they had a version of a, a kiddie version of a water ski show um, for many years at Legoland. They retired that show and they're bringing back. Uh, it's a new pirate themed uh, stunt show with water skis and some new uh, stunts. And uh, yeah, they're having a, a media event. They've even got Nick Walenda, uh, part of the famous Flying Walendas, will be doing a, a high walk over the, uh, I guess, the, the parking lot in between the hotel and the theme park. And hopefully that will will not go poorly uh, for the media event because that that would definitely not make good headlines if that went bad. Oh, the Willendas, that's fantastic. If we had if we had a dollar for every time we mentioned the Willendas in the show, yeah, lately we, we we've been on a Willenda spree. We do have to note just quickly here that the crucial role that Cypress Gardens plays in the history of Walt Disney World. I mean, you know, and I think it was Roy O that used to actually go to Florida and vacation there annually with his wife, Edna. And as a result, they'd always stop at Cypress Gardens and they'd always, they were very friendly with the the founder, Dick Pope Sr. And there was one time where Dick was in his office and, you know, the guy at the gate said, hey, Roy Disney just rolled in with Edna. And so Dick was like, oh, cool. And walked out of his office and stood at the entrance of the park waiting for Roy to show up. And after five or 10 minutes, Roy hadn't showed up. 
Dick walks out to the parking lot and here is Roy counting the cars in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny to see Dick walks up to Roy and goes, is something you want to tell me, Roy? <laughs> and of course, a certain park got built up the street a few years later. Well, it's interesting because Lakeland has never shied away from its Cypress Gardens heritage. Like when you walk in, there's a whole thing about the gardens themselves, right? Yeah, and they even have a, a portion of the classic gardens preserved. Uh, and or they don't right. no longer have women dressed as Southern Bells taking photos. Now they have Lego characters, uh, you know, Lego Southern <laughs> Bells. Right. But still keeping up the tradition, they've still got some of the big trees. Uh, it's really a, a great little uh, ha- day trip um, to uh, take us with little kids. It's actually, if you got kids under five, it might be the best park in Central Florida for them. I think so, yeah. I think we said uh, in the in the uh, world book, anything under age eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do they still have the Island in the Sky attraction, the thing that sort of takes you that, up? And gives you that the- was retired uh, around the time that it, a little after it became Legoland. Uh, got, I got a chance to do that the last year of its operation. And uh, boy, that was a heck of a view. Yeah, it was. A view. Yeah. It was. <laughs> All right, folks, let's do a quick uh, shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, J.S. Slate, Jerry E. Mack, and Andy Dolph. And longtime subscribers, Disney Burns 963 Doug, just Doug, and Kay McMullen. Jim, these are the folks that Disney employs as on-site psychologists for the giant lizards in Disney's dinosaur attraction over at Animal Kingdom. They say the thing dinosaurs want to hear is that guests aren't screaming at them. It's just the dramatic lighting and intense music, they're told. And you're a good dinosaur, and people like you. True story. This explains so much about the Pixar movie, The Good Dinosaur. I, I had no idea. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's, it all fits in. Mm-hmm. All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, every show should begin with a round of self-congratulations. This is no exception. Last year, when we were talking about the retheming of Splash Mountain, you mentioned that Jungle Cruise might also get a retheming. Lo and behold, Disney has announced this week that Jungle Cruise will indeed get a retheming later this year. Uh, apparently, uh, the skipper role will not only be that of a live guide, but also represented by an animatronic figure within the attraction itself. And there'll be some uh, some more uh, culturally relevant or not offensive changes to the ride. What do you think of this, Jim? I'm a little concerned, especially about, you know, everyone's been kind of fixating on the the Lost Safari being swapped out from the Great White Hunter and his guides to now it's, this is where we get our animatronic version of a Jungle Cruise skipper plus an ornithologist. And I mean, there's all of these other scientists that are on, on that pole. Supposedly, the story point is that they got trapped there because as your jungle cruise boat moves further down the river, you see what became of their actual jungle cruise boat. It was stolen by chimpanzees. Have you seen the piece of concept art? They have five animatronic chimpanzees in this thing. I have. Uh, Okay. Do you remember the cheetah animatronic from the great movie ride? The, The one was posing with Maureen O'Sullivan and that sort of thing. Do you remember the story about when they first opened the great movie ride and they tried to get the animatronic cheetah to do an authentic chimpanzees jump up and down to sort of sell, you know, that it was a Tarzan movie? No. 
They they try to get an animatronic jump to jump up and down. Well, I mean, to do that, you know, that sort of jump that chimpanzees do. Oh, right. So the the bobbing up and down, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, what ended up happening during the first six weeks of the great movie ride being open is that Cheetah's head fell off. Yeah, because, I mean, I I think, you know, what what complicated electronics like is to be shaken a lot. There we go. There we go. And just sort of like, I'm looking at a boat full of five chimpanzees, and I know it's a jungle cruise. I know they have limited animation. But it's just sort of like, ah, guys, you know, there's a reason that Mark Davis went with caricatured animals. That you know, In fact, when he came on board in October of 1960 and started doing, Walt sent him over to the park to start of, you know, can we improve rides like Mind Train to Nature's Wonderland or Jungle Cruise? Mark worked with Blaine Gibson to create caricatured animals. That's what kind of concerns me about this sort of leaning into, we we need to be correct. And they were talking about how they actually consulted with an animal behaviorologist to get the chimps just right. It's like, that's overkill for the Jungle Cruise. Well, that's it exactly. And it's just sort of, it's it's a cartoon version of the jungle. And it's just yeah. the notion of if we're, we're leaning too hard into trying to make this PC, it's going to be tough and getting this to work. I really wish Kevin Lively and, and the guys at Imaginary who are tackling this project the best of luck. But it's yep. like, this is going to be a hard needle to thread. They've only showed us the easy stuff. You know, we haven't gotten further down the line and seen the indigenous people, or for that matter, right. what has become of Trader Sam. And wait till the art for that starts to leak out. I'm just, I'm disappointed. I hear they're going to censor the backside of water. That, you know, people have been looking at water's backside all these years without consent. <laughs> the, write, write that one down, Disney. That might be a, uh, that might be a thing. You might, my big concern in this is that the story won't end up making sense. And we've talked about what, ha- what happened to Pirates of the Caribbean mm-hmm. as they introduced changes, right? So when they added in the Jack Sparrow character, the ride became not, o- not only a ride through physical space, but a, a ride through time because there's multiple timelines because Jack is in it. And then the addition of red, which I understand they needed to get rid of the auction scene, but it doesn't make sense to me why pirates who've just bombarded a town and tortured the citizens are all of a sudden concerned about market prices for poultry. <laughs> like that doesn't... <laughs> They're on Reddit. They all got together and... <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, exactly. It's Tor- Tortuga Street There's bets, a hedge fund somewhere. You know, there. Yeah, the hedge fund on <laughs> <Exactly>. chickens. <laughs> that might make more sense. Yeah, so that's my big concern there. Like if the if we've got skippers in two different places or two different times, all that that needs to be worked out. But we'll see. I mean, it's a, the, we knew that the ride was going to be updated. By the way, Jim, did you see also that Disney pulled from Disney Kids, Peter Pan, Dumbo, and a few other films? Really? Okay. Yeah. So what, is that, what do you think that means for the... Uh, I'll, I'll put it up to both of you. Uh, what, is, what do you think that means for like Peter Pan the ride? I think our, as we fly over the Indian encampment, I think that that might get smaller or we might lose our figures there. Yeah. I would be intrigued right now to sort of go and see how Shanghai handled this for their version of Peter Pan. How much attention was paid to Tiger Lily and her dad in that version of the ride. What's interesting with this whole situation is watching how Disney is sort of slow walking, dealing with with social issues. And they've been doing it for years. I mean, we think about it. In the 1960s, that's when we watched Disneyland's Indian War canoes become Davy Crockett's Explorer canoes. 
Right. Likewise, you know, you, we were just talking about pirates. Remember how in the mid 1990s, when that attraction went down for a rehab, that's when the post auction scene where it was lust, it was the, the guys chasing the women and, and yeah. only so Mark could then do his gag of the heavyset girl from the auction chasing one of the pirates. And then how that went from lust to gluttony. I mean, there's plenty of deadly sins to uh, yeah, yeah. To, to select from. I prefer sloth. There we go. All right, <laughs> it's just easier. Yeah, <laughs> a lot less work. <laughs> exactly. All right, fair enough. Also, another uh, park news: Festival of the Lion King is coming back to Disney's Animal Kingdom this summer. That's mildly surprising to me because you would think that Indiana Jones would be the first show back. Number one, it's outdoors. Number two, it's huge. And number three, the studios needs attractions. Not that the Animal Kingdom doesn't, but so here's the thing with uh, Epic. Um, Mm-hmm. The problem is not the audience. I'm sure they would love to bring that back because that's a huge people eater. You can, uh, you know, fit 2,000 some people in, in there, uh, even with social distancing. That would probably have the mm-hmm. highest capacity of any theater. Problem is that show, um, the actors constantly have to be closer than six feet from each other. You cannot punch uh. someone from 12 feet, <laughs> 12 feet away. Uh, if you're jumping, you know, off a three-story building and landing in a crash pad with another actor, you're going to be right up against each other. There's no way to re-block that show so that the actors do not uh, get up close. And you also really can't do that show with plastic face masks. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, it's the, the safety elements of the stunts require too much close contact, Um uh, okay. To be able to bring that. I'm a little surprised that some form of Beauty and the Beast hasn't come back because that's another huge amphitheater. And you can right. easily do a socially distanced dance or a musical show on there. And uh, God knows that Sunset Boulevard could use someone to uh, something to get people off those streets and out of the queues for uh, Twilight Zone and Rock and Roller Coaster. Right. Yeah. So the, I, I'm surprised that the first show back wasn't at the studios. Yeah. Interesting. Do we think, by the way, that um, Voyage of the Little Mermaid is coming back to the studios, the show? I think they might bring it back if only to spite the people who uh, claimed that it was going away. <laughs> <I> keep saying <laughs> clink. <laughs> Something I guess we should have talked about with the Jungle Cruise thing. You did see where Disney actually noted to the effect of this update is not tied to the Dwayne Johnson, Emily Blunt film. Well, number one, they don't know that the uh, that the film is actually coming out in July. We don't know anything about no, that's what exactly. the are going to look like. Yeah, but number two, they did say there might be Easter eggs. Yeah, and it is Curse of the Black Pearl all over again. If it's a hit, it will go more than Easter eggs, you know that sort of thing. Same thing with Voyage of the Little Mermaid. If the new live action mermaid that what's it his name, the gentleman who directed uh, Rob Marshall, uh, who did mm-hmm. Mary Poppins Returns, if that's a success. Yeah, it's entirely possible we'll see that show return, but paying tribute to the live action version. But in this sphere of just trying to figure out how to get big arena type things open again, the fact that little intimate theater, how many, it's like 400, how many people go into the theater per show? Yeah, logistically, I think right now with capacity restraints, they wouldn't be able to fit much more than a a hundred or so in that theater. Um, it's fairly efficient uh, in terms of only having one uh, real equity actor and and then a bunch of puppeteers. Oh, you get the state, you get the text too, right? That yeah, but, show, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a little cheaper to run than something like uh, Finding Nemo. Makes sense. Yeah, that's got to be an expensive show. Yep. Finding Nemo has to be an expensive because it got all kinds of talent, yeah. all kinds of tech. Plus, it's indoors. Oof. 
Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. Uh, obviously, they invested in in getting uh, Festival Lion King up before Finding Nemo. Um, yeah. I know that they did extensive work trying to figure out how to reblock Finding Nemo or turn it into a concert version. But the the tricky thing is there. Uh, there are so many close quarter handoffs of yeah. the uh, puppets backstage. They just couldn't. Uh, you know, it's hard to figure out how to socially distance that. For the actor's safety. Even the Festival of the Lion King that we'll be getting back this summer won't be the show that people previously knew. Mm-hmm. Same thing. The, you know, it, it's been reblocked. The cast has been reduced. Disney still hopes that you know it will be a, a popular people eating attraction. But you got to wonder how many people you can fit in that venue now with yeah. social distancing. Yeah, I think that's it. I think it's the it's the they're looking at how many people can we entertain. How many times per day for how much money per show, and they're doing they're doing that explicit calculation. Yeah. All right, Jim. We got a a bunch of questions for off the show last week about Disneyland annual passes going away, and we we talked about it briefly, but we didn't really talk about what the impact was going to be on the parks and the pass holders itself. Um, so before we talk about new surveys that Disney sent sent out to pass holders, let me ask Seth this question. So Seth. What's the impact going to be on the parks and for the, the people who are annual pass holders in, in Disneyland? With a million annual pass holders, give or take, it's got to have a big impact. Um, and I think that for people who are making you know once in a lifetime or once a decade trips to Disneyland, I think it, it'll probably be a net positive. Um, if only uh, because... Um, attendance will be uh, more based on out-of-towners who tend to come in in the mornings mm-hmm. and then uh, as the day goes on, attendance drops off. Whereas when you have a lot of annual pass holders, Disneyland tends to start busy and then get even busier once you know the workday ends. So I, I think it'll make, uh, especially the evenings in the parks, a lot more pleasant for people who are paying full price for their tickets. Personally, I'm I'm a little sad. I'm clinging to my last Disneyland annual pass. It still had a couple of weeks left on it when everything shut down, and now I will I will just put it in my stack of other expired passes. Well, now you're a legacy pass holder. Yes, which means that they will continue to try to exploit me with uh, offers to spend money for years and years to come. I fully expect there to be some version of a membership uh, of a recurring pass, but we're never going to have the experience of just being able to wake up and go to Disneyland any day you feel like it. There's going to be some amount of pre-planning, of rationing, and it's it's probably way, way overdue. It's a shame that it took a pandemic to make it happen, but it was probably uh, something that was going to have to happen anyway. So you mentioned the um, you mentioned the options uh, and the rationing. So uh, one of our listeners, Matt, sent in a bunch of survey questions. He got uh, he's a Disneyland annual pass holder, so he got a number of questions about when he most recently visited other Southern California attractions. So things like Knott's Berry Farm, SeaWorld San Diego, Universal Studios, the San Diego Zoo, Six Flags, and Legoland. So uh, Disney wanted to know when you visited those. The next question was, in the year after the following attractions open, fully reopened, how many days do you plan to visit each of those things? The way they're supposed to respond is, with the total number of days in a year that you hope to visit. So if you're going to take two trips each of three days, you're supposed to answer six. So they wanted to know, once everything fully reopens, how many days per year are, are 
Disneyland annual pass holder is going to spend at Knott's, at SeaWorld, at Universal Hollywood, at Disneyland. And, and it's interesting because Disneyland, they capped the answer at 51 or more days. Like there wasn't, there wasn't an option for like 50, 75, 100, 150. Then Six Flags and uh, Legoland. And then the next question after that was household income. What's the correlation of how many days are you going to spend at these attractions and your household income? Well, for the people who there is a definite correlation are the uh, YouTube vloggers who have made a career out of going to Disneyland every single day. Uh, and they are going to have to sure. find a new job. I got that survey too. And uh, I did not have, I had similar questions, but I did not have that exact question. on mine. Well, yeah. So that's interesting because it looks like Disney's doing it. Uh, some sort of like if then statement based on mm-hmm. your previous answers. Cause Matt noted at some point after he had answered a question about his role in the household's decision-making around purchasing memberships or annual passes. Once he answered that question, his survey was done, but we did get a screen capture of the alternatives to annual passes that Disney was thinking about offering. So the, the way the, the, the question was phrased was this. Imagine Disneyland reopens and you're planning to purchase enough admission for a year for you and your household. How many of each of the following kinds of tickets would you purchase if these were the only options available? All right. So they've got three different annual passport options here. I'll read you the each of them and then we'll, we'll discuss the pros and cons. So the first one is a passport with blackout dates around spring break, Thanksgiving and Christmas. You can reserve uh, up to 90 days in advance. You can hold four park reservations at a time. And you get six show-up-anytime reservations per year. You get a 10% merch discount, 30% on food and bev, 20% on special tickets. But you don't get free parking. It's a 20% discount. You do get max pass included, photo pass, and a dedicated entrance. And it's $1,000 for an adult. $809 for kids. So let's talk about that. Four reservations held at a time in a 90-day window, six anytime reservations, blackout dates, not free parking. For $1,000, that's a lot of restrictions. I feel like that is about what I was previously paying for my annual pass. And other than being blocked out around uh, the Christmas holidays, I could walk in any day I wanted especially as someone who comes in from out of town. Generally, I'm there for uh, six or seven days, having only four days guaranteed. It's tough sell to say that I'm going to book a hotel room uh, without knowing if I'm actually going to be able to get in the park or not. So do you think Disney would make an exception if you were um, you were booking a hotel? It would do like it's doing at Walt Disney World and say... If you were staying at an on-site yeah. hotel, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and since there are traditionally very few benefits to staying on-site at Disneyland mm-hmm. uh, versus staying at a, a cheap motel right across the street, that could be a tremendous incentive to fill out those hotel rooms. Yeah, separate bucket of uh, reservation, park reservations just for, yeah. I think it's um, like in Walt Disney World. When, when Disney announced its early theme park entry program, that's going to be a huge advantage for people who are staying on site, a huge disadvantage for people staying off site. So, uh, I mean, and that's, and that's relatively cheap for Disney to implement, right? I, yeah. Um, you know, I, 
thinking of those numbers, what I would say is that uh, for, for my kind of use case, where I'm going out for a week at a time, uh, two or three times a year, um, I might go back to buying individual tickets instead of an annual pass. Uh, so let me give you the let me give you the second passport option, just in case. All right. All right. So here's the second option. Uh, again, 90 day reservation window. You can hold six reservations at a time, but no anytime reservations. In other words, you can't just show up any day and go. So there are no uh, anytime reservations. You get two tickets to come in during the blockout days. So you get two exceptions. You get a 30% merch discount, a 10% food and bev discount, and a 20% special event ticket. You get free parking, but no max pass. And it's $1,400 per person. All right. You can't charge me an extra 400 bucks and take away my max pass. I, I'm pretty much going to say that any annual pass at Disneyland that does not include a max pass is a non-starter for me. Well, it's interesting because there's no option that Disney gave that includes both max pass and parking at any price. Now, I will say that we got one particular survey here. This does not rep what happens because I got the similar survey, but with different numbers. Right. Yeah, yeah. So what they do is they send out completely random combinations to thousands and thousands of people, and then they crunch the numbers down. So just because that was not an option on this particular survey doesn't mean that someone else didn't get that off. No right. doubt. Fair enough. No doubt. But just last year, they opened the Pixar Pals parking structure right next to Mickey and Friends because yep. of all of the hundreds of thousands of Disneyland annual pass holders who were going to come flooding back to the park so they could experience Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. There's a lot of infrastructure here that was built deliberately to handle annual pass holders. And, you know, and I realize the pandemic has upended that plan. And even out ahead of that, they were already, you know, it's like, whoa, do we miscalculate when it came to the appeal of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge? But it's just the whole notion of they built it so they would come. And now we're in the situation of, OK, well, how do we get them to come back? Boy, I don't know. I'm going to just yeah, char charging for parking is not that is not that way. I, I don't think. No, no. I mean, I mean, what, Seth, what's parking in Disneyland? Oh, how much is you're going to put me on the spot. I, I think it's like 28 something or in that. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, you know, it's almost 30 bucks a day. Yeah. So if you go, if you go a couple times a month, that's an extra $60 a month. That's an extra $720 a year in parking. Yeah. I'm, I'm spoiled here in Florida. Um, I cannot imagine an uh, annual pass, not including parking here in Florida, but you yeah. know, Southern California, um, you know, they have slightly better transportation infrastructure. Um, I know people yeah. who do, use public transportation to get to Disneyland. Um, and it would great, it'd be great if they could, uh, you know, get more cars off the road by discouraging parking or, you know, encouraging carpooling at least. So the, uh, the third passport option is this, a 60-day reservation window instead of 90 days. Only two reservations can be held at any given time. You get four anytime reservations. You get one blackout date visit, 30% uh, merch discount, 10% on food and bev, no discount on special event tickets, parking is not included, max pass is not included, unlimited photo pass is not included, there's no rewards program. Oh, by the way, uh, the middle uh, version had a rewards program. Um, okay, so none of that stuff is, and it's still $1,000 per person, for, per adult, $900 per, per child. I have a feeling that that's sometimes in a survey, you put in one answer that's obviously wrong, 
uh, yeah. just to see how many, you know, as a control, see how many people would pick it. I can't see any reason to pick that over the same price uh, for the first option, which gave you a lot more, unless you buy a lot of merchandise, because it was a slightly better merchandise discount. And when you, you hear a price of $999 for an annual pass or, or for an adult or, or, you know, $1,399, nobody's, nobody's paying. You know that that this is the cable bill model. That's whatever that is spread out over twelve months. Right. Anybody I've talked with at Disneyland, their fear is, yes, we stopped the member. You know, we stopped the annual pass holder program. We're about to start up the membership program. But it's like, what if we're in the exact same situation? It's like people don't care what price point it is. They want right. to go to Disneyland, and you know, especially if you're breaking it into a pay annually over twelve months. Where's the sting? It's very interesting that you say that um, because the the monthly payment program, I think even more than the annual passes themselves, uh, in some quarters have been blamed for the you know huge growth of annual pass holders that because they people don't have to put that thousand dollars right up front, you know you get a lot more people joining that who wouldn't otherwise. And I'm wondering if part of the objective of this is to cut down on the number of annual pass holders and, and control that population if there is going to be a monthly payment program when it comes back. Wouldn't wouldn't they just increase it though by, by price? I mean if it was if it was that, why wouldn't they just make it, you know, twenty four hundred dollars for an annual pass, two hundred dollars a month month. It's somewhere between a cable bill and a car payment. Well, you know, the, but the weird thing was we were watching that happen in real time over the last yeah, yeah, yeah. years. And you know, the pandemic just paused that, but made them think, okay, it's time to really try to fix this problem as opposed to, well, let's just see what it's going to take to price out 30% of our annual pass holders. I got to say, I just this week renewed my Universal Orlando annual pass. Um, and I got the top of the line premier pass yep. for three parks, including the water park. Um, I get early admission. I get free express passes. I get a free Halloween, free valet at the works. Um, for five hundred and five hundred eighty bucks and change. Yep, and that's for eighteen months. Oh, I forgot they were doing the. Eight, I forgot they were doing the eighteen month thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah eighteen months for the for the price of twelve. Um, so you know, you you look at that compared to nine ninety nine, um, for the two Disney parks. Yeah, that's a that's a big chunk of change. Yeah, it includes parking, valet parking. But there will be people lined up to pay it uh, yeah. as soon as the parks reopen. That's for sure. No matter how high they set this, yeah, there will be people willing to pay it. I guess the question is is is, is there a uh, is it the right number for for Disney? But Jim, let me ask you this question. So the the third passport option that we discussed, thousand dollars, not including anything. Let's take that one off the table. Disney's really only giving us two choices. Then right, it's a thousand dollars with max pass and unlimited photo pass or $1,400 without max pass, but with parking. Is it, is this a, a case of Disney knowing what they want the answer to be and, and just giving you the uh, two choices that they're okay. All right. So this is a case of uh, the politician Huey Long saying, I don't care who does the voting mm-hmm. as long as I do the nominating. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the other thing is that if you think about Southern California, you think about, you know, the car culture, you think about the aspect of how many annual pass holders would drive to the park just themselves in their own car. Sure. Taking free parking off the table to these people, that's huge. That really. Yeah, that would, that would be a disincentive in and of itself. Yeah. yeah. 
but really, Max Pass is that important to Disneyland annual pass holders? Really? I mean, it's the fact that you don't have to walk across the park to pull a fast pass. Yeah, if you if you've spent a day in Disneyland with Max Pass and then done a day without it, uh, yeah. I, I would say it is worth every penny that they charge for it. Okay, okay. and and it's interesting then because that means Fast Pass is coming back, at least oh, in Disneyland. Interesting point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Can't have Max Pass without Fast Pass. Or well, I guess you could in theory. I guess you, you could if you're paying free. for it. <laughs> if they were to get rid of the free Fast Pass service and only have paid Max Pass, that would be a seismic shift for them. Yeah, that would be. That'd be huge. That'd be a huge advantage for uh, for for paying for it. Yeah. Interesting. All right, uh, let's go do another listener question. Jim Brendan writes in with this: Is there an expansion pad available for Galaxy's Edge? If so, I feel like the resolution to so many of the concerns we've heard about Galaxy's Edge seems to be to create an attraction about a hidden Jedi temple where guests can experience the Force. Maybe a coaster, like Revenge of the Mummy or Gringotts, then you could have riders connect with Yoda, Luke, Grogu, Ahsoka, Obi-Wan, and Mace, connecting all the timelines. You could even have a moment when the riders are experiencing fear, which leads to the dark side, sparking appearances by Vader, the Emperor, Darth Maul, and so on. This would bring in those character experiences that have been missing. Just a thought. And unfortunately, I know Disney's listening to this. Unfortunately, Brendan did not provide an address to send royalty checks. <laughs> so Disney, if you could just forward them to, to Jim and I, we will make sure that Brendan gets his, his money. Jim, I think this is a fantastic idea. And you know, the weird part of it is I want to say the Oculus Rift, the uh, Tales from uh, Galaxy. Oh, the, the Galaxy Edge. For the yeah, 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 that that I, I think they actually do refer to a Jedi temple wreckage of something. I can, in fact, I think this is how they they bring Frank Oz into the game as the voice of Yoda. Ah. I know from talking with folks at Disneyland, there's been some grumbling about the fact that they don't have the room. In fact, the early on there, there was the talk of building a third attraction, the Bantha creature experience, because that would then allow you to show guests both where the rebel base was hidden and also get a sense of the downtown and, and Batu. And at least in Florida, so much of the emphasis about expansion is the hotel. First, we have to get that up and running and, you know, make that successful. And in Florida, there is in fact room, you know, areas they could bump out into, but Priority one is that hotel and making sure it's successful. And only then, when that is booked out months in advance, will they they even consider expanding Florida. So it's kind of sad because California, I think, especially could use a new attraction to help just drive people that far back into the park because it's it's bear country you visited. (laughs) I have to walk back where? It's like, no. So I... As, as a Star Wars super fan, I want to uh, throw in my two cents on this. Uh, first of all, in terms of expansion pads, recently, uh, because of the social distancing of the queue for Millennium Falcon, they've been opening up the backstage area that is normally employees only and routing the queue through there. Um, so that gives you a good view of what is behind Oga's Cantina. Uh, as we know, Oga's was uh, originally supposed to be a more elaborate sit-down dinner with live entertainment and that never happened but there is still a sizable parking lot uh, that guests get a very scenic view of (laughs) right now when they're waiting for millennium falcon 
So, uh, and I believe that uh, from looking at aerial photography, the exact same uh, little plot of land was left in California. So theoretically, there is some spot. But in terms of theming, uh, I know a lot of people, they want to see the Mandalorian in the parks. They want to see it. I think the idea of breaking up the canon and disrupting the timeline will come over Scott Trowbridge's dead body. Um, I mean, I mean, I mean that, can, that can be arranged. Yeah. Um, I, you know, the, the Imagineers really like staked their claim on making this its own unique thing with a very specific space place in the canon and uh, not just being a generic Wizarding World type mashup of different scenes. However, they do have a loophole. And if you are a Star Wars super geek, you know about this, but the general public does not. There is a thing in Star Wars called the World Between Worlds. Um, we are going to get into yeah. this in the Ahsoka show because Ahsoka uh, only exists in the current timeline because she was rescued uh, during the course of Rebels uh, through the World Between Worlds. Yeah, we've, we've talked about it on a, uh, on a previous show. It, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm against it. But, well, the uh, uh, and the other thing is that the uh, there's a Star Wars Galaxy's Edge guidebook that was put out that talks specifically about four seasonal festivals that happen in Batu. Oh God! It's like the marketing department starts writing canon. <laughs> and these are seasonal festivals that involve um, paying tribute. food and alcohol. Yes, food and alcohol, but also paying tribute to heroes of the past. So this would be an in-canon way of still, oh my you know, because, God. because uh, Black Spire Outpost is set very, you know, pretty much at the end of the star, current Star Wars timeline. Uh, the Mandalorian yeah. is dead. In the time that you are at Galaxy's Edge, you can see the Mandalorian's helmet hanging on the wall in Doth Ondar's. So the Mandalorian is gone, but they could still remember him and they could still pay tribute to them. And maybe Batu uh, citizens like cosplaying and could dress up as dead characters uh at certain times of the year on to the next question listener joe sent in a screen cap he got earlier this week uh while pricing out a stay at disney's pop century resort this coming june using disney's website and what's interesting about this is that it offered joe the disney dining plan so joe asked me if this was a real offer so i asked some of our folks to contact disney who said it was a glitch on the website and should never ever have been displayed to the public. But in relaying that information back to Joe, it prompted a discussion within our little team along the lines of, with what Disney just announced for the Disneyland annual pass holders, do you think the dining plans are ever coming back? So we're trying to think of like reasons why the dining plan would come back and why it wouldn't. So I'd like to get your, uh, your thoughts on this. So on, in terms of like why it would come back, you know, unlike Disneyland annual pass holders, Disney World dining plans can only be used by guests at a Disney resort so locals don't take advantage of it, that automatically limits it to higher paying customers. Also, it's super popular with people who like to have everything paid for in full before the trip. Third, Disney seems to make a ton of money off of it. So they get paid whether you eat the food or not. It seems like it's a relatively low risk thing. But saying that, it does make you wonder about the continued existence of Tables in Wonderland, which has got to be said, you can tell me if I'm wrong or it's got to be mostly used by locals, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And, and those are the hardcore locals. Um, yeah. The only, the only reason I could think of not to bring back the dining plan would be there's not enough indoor dining capacity and there's not going to be for the foreseeable future. So why offer something? Well, I have, a da- I have a data point on that, or I have two data points and they're anecdotal. But uh, la- this past Friday, mm-hmm. um, I was able to get a table 
at Chefs de France at 7 p.m. prime time on, on about, about five hours notice. Yeah. And um, at the Magic Kingdom, um, they, you know, they now have people standing outside uh, the, the Crystal Crystal Palace uh, begging people to come. They're actually, they're actually at Casey's Corner saying, hey, just oh, yeah, walk, yeah. walk down right here. Would you like some food? Yeah. That's, um, which yeah. is a shame. I, I'm, I have friends who have, some have been we- waiters there since the 1970s. Um, oh, yeah. That, that, that restaurant had one of the most long-serving staff. And um, the, the, these folks were forced to convert from serving a buffet yeah. to serving a uh, family-style table service, which is a much different uh, physically <laughs> for a waiter yeah. to do. And uh, yeah, I, I I feel so bad for those those guys because that's they're having a rough time without the characters uh, and still being charged a very high price. They're having a lot of trouble filling those seats. We've uh, we've reviewed it for touring plans twice, the uh, Crystal Palace dinner, and and don't think it's a good value. It's the food quality is just not there for the for the money being charged. So it's not surprising that they're trying to beg people to come in. And the word and it's interesting because the um, the we've gotten quite a few surveys from readers. On it, and the you know, Crystal Palace was sort of always around like a ninety percent approval. It's it's below eighty percent now, which tells you yeah. how much the quality has dropped since they reopened. So something something I think has to change there. Jim, yep. what are you, what are your thoughts? I actually know a few cast members who loved that they had that gig at the Crystal Palace because again, it was it was always packed, and and the fact that it was a buffet. If you were a waiter or a waitress, it was one of the easiest gigs on property and you made great dough. And yeah. Crystal Palace hasn't been a table service restaurant since the 80s. You, you got to feel for them coupled with the fact that, you know, the artificial draw for that was you're in that space and the characters were going with the characters, from, right. from table to table. And now I keep seeing the footage of, you know, it's like Tigger and Piglet and Pooh out on the porch waving to people. That's not enough to get people through the door. And this pandemic can't be over soon enough. All right. Uh, all right. One less uh, listener question. This is from, uh, from Cameron. Uh, Jim says that there were three different times Imagineering attempted a walk-around alligator or crocodile character. Uh, Jim said that these were the alligator from Peter Pan, from Fantasia, and Lou from Princess and the Frog. However, uh, it seems he's neglected Laguna Gator and Ice Gator from Blizzard Beach. I know these characters were not present for very long, but still an attempt at walk around characters in the quote parks. And so Cameron mentioned that. Uh, I would also like to add that my close personal friend from high school, Colin McGrail, did the alligator character for the opening of Planet Hollywood at Downtown Disney, and I forgot about that too. So there we go. I apologize to, to both Colin and Cameron. Yes, I, I missed this too. <laughs> and in fact, that's especially crazy because I was there on opening day. For Blizzard Beach. And they did have Ice Gator out then because they were pushing merch for Blizzard Beach you know, right out the door. All right, uh, Jim, in patent news, the FAA recently announced an approval of drone flights over people. You, you saw that? Uh, then today, the U.S. Patent Office published a patent application by Disney submitted back in July of 2020 for a themed aerial vehicle entertainment platform for providing dynamically coordinated shows. And I've posted in the show notes, Jim, what the uh, drone looks like. What does it look like to you, Jim? Hey, we're getting a Peter Pan scene in the show, aren't we, Len? Yeah, so this is a so themed aerial, aerial vehicle entertainment platform. It's a drone show. So the, the patent talks about it. Is this, does this provide more evidence that Disney's looking to do a drone-based show? 
we know from the Starlight Extravaganza at, at Downtown Disney uh, or excuse me, Disney Springs that they at least kicked the tires of this. Yeah, Look, looks like they're still working on it. Yeah. Back when Harmonious was initially being talked about, you remember the, the, the patents we saw that suggested the flight path in and out? Oh, right, around uh, World Series Lagoon, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in fact, isn't that where the Epcot Preview Center, the old Odyssey <laughs> restaurant was, was, you know, that was sort of the path in and out, and they take off basically behind that, fly over the roof, and then they'd create a path in and out. Right, and it would minimize the amount of time that they spend over uh, guests. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Does the Peter Pan ship mean that uh, they're considering drones for Magic Kingdom? It's so funny that this patent bubbles up, and we were talking earlier about Scott Trowbridge, because... Scott's on the patent, actually. Well, there we go. Okay, because just recently... A video has showed up on, on YouTube where it's uh, Scott talking about playtest. He's talking about the next generation of what Disney's going to be doing in the parks. And, you know, sadly, this is a couple of years old presentation. But at one point, they actually include the footage of the dragon flyover of the Magic uh, yeah. Kingdom back from when uh, New Fantasyland opened. That was the 2012 event, right? Or And they made such a big deal about 2014? Well, I, I know that the, the dragon was there for, I think, phase one. Uh, okay. When they opened phase two with Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, I, I think that the, the dragon stayed on the ground. But yeah, they made such a big deal about, hey, we have this dragon that will fly over the park. And they created that preview video of it supposedly right. doing a flyby of the contemporary. And then they use it just the once for the, the press event. And based on what Scott says as part of this the presentation, which again, you can find on YouTube, that was not the plan. This was supposed to be something that appeared over the park nightly. So, Interesting. Interesting. All right, so we'll see. Mm -hmm. But uh, it looks like they're still working on it, so that's good. Yeah, yeah. And again, just like I love that it, it, it appears to be the Jolly Roger, potentially to, if you remember the end of Peter Pan, it, it lights up gold and it flies through the sky. So it's like, ooh. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, hope good that's point. the case. Also today, uh, and Seth, I want to get your take on this, uh, Universal updated its patent from 2019 titled Dynamic Quest-Based Narrative. <laughs> Seth, what is this? Yeah, so this is interesting. At first I looked at it and I thought it was related to the uh, interactive land uh, for Super Nintendo World. Um, you know, when at Super Nintendo World, uh, you're going to be able to buy an RFID uh, wristband that's kind of similar to a magic band, except it's used a slap bracelet. Yep. And you'll be able to use that to interact along with your smartphone with various locations around the land. Um, and you'll be able to actually participate in challenges, team up with other players, uh, take on boss battles. It, it's actually kind of taking the gamification of Galaxy's Edge to a, a much higher level. Uh, something that's actually fun and people will want to do repeatedly, as opposed to the data pad, which got old real quick. But... Then I looked at the names on this, and I see Rick Spencer and TJ Manorino, um, who are high ups in art and design here in Orlando for Halloween Horror Nights. And these were the guys who were behind Legendary Truth, which was uh, an interactive uh, kind of an alternate reality adventure that took place within Halloween Horror Nights and was kind of just for the hardcore Halloween. Ah, so okay. this, this looks like it's... Um, some of the stuff that they've experimented before on a, a larger level of having 
uh, kind of an interactive adventure game that you can participate with uh, optionally within an event. Um, it looks like uh, guests are visiting different attractions and it is uh, using a device to send them to different locations and you finally end up at a, a story finale. So it would link all the, all the different, it would link all the different houses together into a cohesive narrative. Yeah. And they have, they have done that before um, through their app. Um, so since this was filed in 2019, it's possible that this is patenting something that they have already experimented with or right. is a continuation. It's a con it is a continuation. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that makes sense. That'd be interesting for uh, for horror nights. It's um, it's all part of you know this, and it's something that could turn up at Epic Universe too. This idea of gamify gamifying a theme park, so that you are right. having some sort of ongoing adventure uh, that is tracking you as a character, um, almost like uh, you know playing a role playing video game, um, so that your whole day is an experience as opposed to just ride here, ride there. Hmm. That's super interesting. Um, it's pretty. It's pretty ambitious, uh, and uh, would love. Uh, you know, obviously, some of this stuff is coming to life right now in uh, in Nintendo at Japan, which uh, I hope we can chat a little bit about. Oh, fantastic! All right, folks, that's it for the uh, listener questions. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim and I talk with Seth about writing the unofficial guide to Universal Orlando. We'll be right back. All right, so let's talk about first what uh, what you what's new for Universal for 2021. I uh, I did notice that there was a release this this week, some sort of augmented reality video for Mario Kart. Oh my goodness! Um, yeah, that's that's a whole other story. So Mario Kart is the headliner attraction at Super Nintendo World, which was supposed to open in time for the. 2020 Tokyo Olympics in Osaka, Japan. Obviously, that didn't happen. They were actually supposed to have their opening early February now, and that's even been pushed wow. off uh, because of the surge in, in COVID. But they are doing soft openings. People have been on it. Um, some video leaked out, and I cannot wait for this to be built in the United States because I've watched this video like five or six times and my brain still cannot. Right. Quite That's understand. the thing I was looking at. Like, where, where, are, where are we supposed to be in the game on this? This little clip that came out is from the finale of the ride. And what you have to understand is this is a traditional bus bar dark ride, like your, your typical fantasy land, Mr. Toad kind of car that you're sitting in. But the walls around you and even the floor and ceiling are all augmented with projection mapping. So digital sure. projections all over the surfaces, like, like we saw for Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. But what we've never seen before is augmented reality headsets. Now, a lot of people know what virtual reality is, uh, the Oculus yeah. Quest headsets that Jim mentioned, uh, real popular over Christmas. Virtual reality completely puts you in a computer world and you're blocked off from the right. real world. Augmented reality, um, the way these are going to work is uh, first you're going to put on a little plastic uh, Mario cap that's going to sort of sit on your head and it's going to um, let you get uh, the fit all adjusted before you ever get on the ride. And then once you sit on the ride, you're going to slide basically a little smartphone tablet into the visor of the helmet and it turns it into a little Pepper's ghost effect. Uh, you know how like on the Haunted Mansion, you can see the ghosts because you're seeing a reflection in a mirror. Well, you're going to have a little uh, 
two little mirrors, two little uh, pieces of uh, reflective material in front of each eye at an angle that's going to reflect off of the uh, screen that you pushed into your visor. And the result is you get a 3D hologram floating in front of your, in front of your vision. And the visor tracks the movement of your head, the movement of the visor in six degrees of freedom perfectly. So wherever you see, wherever you turn your head, it can generate a floating hologram that perfectly matches the movement of your head and the movement of your vehicle. So you add this all together and you're basically putting the rider inside a video game where you can be driving along a physical track. You can have projected characters on the walls and you know floor all around you. And then you've got these 3D digital holograms of you know throwing shells as weapons at the your enemies and catching stars and getting um, turn signals popping up in your vision to turn the steering wheel in the appropriate direction to score high. You put all this together and I think a lot of people's brains are gonna melt the first time they go on this because it just looks like a pure overload of visual stimulation and uh, the closest we've come so far to like being in the matrix, you know, <laughs> diving right into a digital world. So the, the cap is holding most of the electronics, right? But it's not going to be as, as bulky as a VR headset because the glasses don't have to do as much, right? It's not rendering the entire world. So if you go online, you can search for um, something called uh, the Lenovo um, Jedi Challenges. Right. Uh, it was a short-lived toy. Uh, it came out for uh, a couple of years ago and didn't do that well, but that's the general idea of the oh, technology. Okay. You're wearing a relatively lightweight plastic okay. cap that's just there to keep the electronics in place. And the electronics are all physically attached by a cable to the car. They're permanently attached to the vehicle. So you can have all so the, so the cap is attached the, the, the cap is attached via cable to the car? Um, no, the cap is it's sitting on your head. And you're, 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 imagine a smartphone that is, has a cable plugged into the dashboard and you're just sliding that smartphone into a slot on your headset. So, so that they don't have to have a complete, all the, the electronics in every cap, you can distribute the caps because they're cheap. Everyone get them fitted and adjusted before you sit down. And then once you sit down, you just slide the screen portion right into the visor and it snaps into the right place to reflect at the proper angle to create that hologram in Got front it. of your okay. eyes. So, uh, and it means that if, if one of those pieces goes bad, they can just uncable it and pop in a new one as Try opposed to, the to yeah. uh, you know, having Oh, exactly. cool. That makes sense. What else is uh, coming up at uh, Universal in uh, 2020? I understand that they're having some sort of velociraptor problem over there. Are they going <laughs> to get that under control? Well, yeah. Or? It's, it's just a churro stand. It's just okay. a churro stand. So yeah, the big difference between Disney and Universal is that Disney tells us what they're going to build in five years. And we look at the concept art and we see it slowly take place. And then when it finally opens, it may or may not be what we were. And it resemblance to, uh, to characters or uh, alive or dead or is purely, purely coincidental. <laughs> purely coincidental. Universal does the opposite. They tell you nothing's going on. That cons- There's no construction over there. We have no idea what's going on. And then they say, oh, by the way, in a few months, we're opening a new e-ticket. Get ready. So Jurassic World Velocicoaster um, has been not so quietly, not just 
built, but is now testing with live human beings on it. And uh, all of them seem to have come back in one piece. So that's good news. Do you have official numbers on that? On how many people have come back alive? Yeah, you've counted? You, you're sure that there's a 100% <laughs> uh, success rate? I've seen, I've seen the photos. And as, okay. as far as I can tell, uh, no one has been ejected yet. Um, but yeah, no, they, they did the testing with the water dummies and everything, and, uh, they've been filming, uh, looks like potential, uh, commercial or promotional footage with, with actual human beings. Um, so this is going to be one of the most intense roller coasters in central Florida, I think. Which, uh, which, which park is it in, in Universal? So this is in Islands of Adventure okay. and is part of Jurassic Park, which to be honest, uh, was one of the best parts of the park when it opened and it's been looking a little long in the tooth but this is going to inject some new energy into the area it's interesting the ride is themed after jurassic world but the rest of the land is still remaining jurassic park so they're sort of blending the two franchises they're bringing in the actors from the jurassic world movies um including uh chris pratt who's going to be uh competing with himself i guess over at epcot on the guardians of the galaxy ride oh funny but uh, yeah, he'll be in the in the queue, and uh, it's a high speed roller coaster ride with inversions and high speed launches, and it's just a twisted spaghetti ball in and out of this rock work with waterfalls, close encounters with animatronic raptors. It launches on a giant hundred and seventy foot tall high hat and dives upside down along the waterline, and best of all. Just a lap bar, nothing over your shoulders, just a lap bar and physics holding you in. Really? So, yes. This is really, I think, um, you know, Incredible Hulk is a very intense coaster, but I think that this is going to, uh, in some ways, exceed that in terms of speed, in terms of number in, of inversions. Uh, this is going to be a huge draw for coaster jumping. And you have sure. to wonder wow. if this opens this spring, how long after Hagrid? Two years? Yeah, and, and considering that Hagrid, uh, you know, lost a quarter of operating time, yeah, it's 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 like a year and a half of operations, and and Hagrid is still pulling people in. This will actually help rebalance the park, hopefully a little, because, you know, just this last week, it's been very low crowds in the parks. Everything in the park has been a fifteen minute wait or less, except yeah. for Hagrid, which has consistently been, you know, about forty five minutes to an hour. Wow. What else, uh, what else is Universal working on, if anything? Any restaurants? Any uh, Anything else? This is a weird time for Universal. Um, there's a lot of things that are kind of quietly bubbling under the surface. But the big question is when they pull the trigger and start going full speed back into Epic Universe. Uh, okay. Even since uh, progress on that was not completely halted, it, you know, they are still doing a lot of infrastructure work. They're building uh, roads through there. They're right. um, doing drainage. Um, so we're going to see something happen there. But instead of seeing a new park there in 2023, it'll probably be closer to 2025. So that's, you know, I think that's where a lot of their efforts are going to go over the next few years. But right now they are gearing up for Mardi Gras. And uh, Universal is, has been doing a good job of taking their traditional seasonal events like Halloween mm -hmm. and Christmas that, that normally draw a lot of people in. And they can't do the things that they would normally do. Uh, but they've been doing a pretty smart job of adapting. So this year, Mardi Gras is going to be a food festival. 
and it looks like they're coming Wait, out. a food festival in a in a Central Florida theme park? Right. Uh, if, you know, if this is a success, it's going to catch on. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, I took a walk around the park yesterday, and they are, um, you know, they're building little temporary booths that ver- look very much like uh, Epcot's um, food booths, hmm. and they're all around the park. Um, and it's going to be an international thing. You know, they're going to do the uh, Mardi Gras New Orleans food, but they're also going to have um, Caribbean food, Caribbean, yeah, have European. Yeah. You know, anywhere that they do a Fat Tuesday celebration, they will use an excuse. So pretty much everything except Asian food, I think they're going to have some variation of. And uh, they're going to be doing tasting lanyards and discounts to really go after that that local uh, that local and annual pass holder audience. That's fantastic. Jim, anything you want to add to that? So parade component and they always have such an amazing Mardi Gras parade, but that's not happening this year. Yeah. Well, it you know they're smart. For Christmas, what they did is they moved their parade floats indoors, and they turned it into a walkthrough attraction with uh, characters standing on the floats and waving at you, and a, a Santa Claus uh, socially distanced at the end. So they t- took the parade and brought it out inside. This year, what they're doing is they're spreading the parade floats all around the park as stationary mm. uh, exhibits. They'll have characters, stilt walkers, people throwing beads. Um, but instead of the parades moving, uh, the parade floats moving around the park at a set time, they'll just be there out all day for people to interact with whenever they want. So, you know, it's, it's, it's taking the, the stuff, the resources that they've already invested in. You know, they had already paid up front before this happened for new parade floats. So they're going to have brand new parade floats out this year um, that'll be making their debut. Uh, they just won't be parading. But they're getting some use of them, so that's good. Yeah. Let me ask you this question, Seth. What's it like writing a guidebook during a pandemic? <laughs> if if you know a little Yiddish, it was a bit of a mishigas. Uh, <laughs> when did you when did you start updating the unofficial guide for 2021? Honestly, I start updating the next year's edition the day that that one edition comes out. I'm already making a list of everything that's changed for in for the 2022 books, you know, in the, the few days that we've had the 2021. But for uh, this year, you know, n- my normal cycle, would I would be doing intensive research, visiting the parks almost every day, right during the spring. You know, that's my that prime research time. And obviously, the park was shut down for the spring this year. Right. So uh, it was kind of a, a, a lot of compression, uh, sitting around waiting for the parks to reopen and gathering every rumor that was floating online about what might change, uh, you know, compiling all of our vision of, you know, what's going it's going to be like when it reopens. And then when it reopened, um, much to my wife's chagrin, <laughs> visiting the parks on a regular basis uh, and <laughs> washing my hands a lot. And, uh, you know, taking my clothes off and throwing them in the in the washing machine uh, before I even came in from the garage. But, you know, going to the parks as soon as they opened and documenting everything. And, you know, a lot of the times I can redo the book and there's certain attractions that, you know, haven't really changed in five or ten years. They are what they are. E.T. Yeah. yeah. 
but this was uh, E.T. is a perfect example. Uh, this I had to go back and re-experience all these rides because E.T. is no longer um, requesting your name to give a passport at the beginning of the ride. And he's no longer calling you by name uh, at the end of the attraction. And that's kind of a, a major component. So, um, you know, guests need to know if they go in expecting to see that, that if you're visiting during the time of COVID, that's something that's going to be missing. There's a lot of the universal experience that's still there, but there's a lot of the subtle differences that have changed. Uh, Gringotts is a perfect example. You know, we, we declared that a, a five-star attraction based right. not just on the ride, but based on the whole queue. The and queue, the right. Show, the experience of the hologram that you see and riding down in the elevator. And when you are... <laughs> and, and there is none of that now. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, you, you when you take something... Uh, that is this magical effect that you feel like you're traveling 10 miles down and instead you just have both doors of the elevator wide open showing that it's, you know, just an illusion. That right there is is changing the experience. Um, right. So, you know, that's documenting all that stuff and finding the balance between telling everyone about everything that's going on, but still, you know, have, helping them make a smart assessment over whether it's worth it for them and their family to visit. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was, it's the first time, you know, we've always taken the approach uh, in the unofficial guidebooks from the very beginning that the Disney and the Universal Parks are world-class product and they're expensive, but you, you generally can get good value for your money. This was the first time we really had to address up front, is it worth going on a vacation with all these kind of COVID changes? Right. And, uh, you know, I, we had discussions, uh, you know, you and I and, and Bob, we had, you know, conference calls and emails back and forth. And, and I think what we all came to agree on is that if this is your, your first ever once in a lifetime trip to Orlando, uh, hold off for another year or so. Yeah. Uh, but if you are a veteran, um, this has been, strangely enough, one of the best times to visit the parks because a lot of the hassles that came with the peak attendance that we had been seeing for the last couple of years, right. uh, there are days when you feel like what the parks were back in the 90s before everything was over-programmed and over-scheduled and over-booked. So, yeah, there's there's definitely a silver lining. Uh, I never thought there, I'd say there there can be a silver lining to a global pandemic. Uh, <laughs> but you know there there are things that if you're smart you can take advantage of. And this if nothing else, this COVID edition of the book is going to be a collector's item. Uh, you know I want to look back at this in ten years and think, oh my god, can you imagine that well, we did all that stuff? Speaking of which, when they reopened the parks, both Disney and Universal, it was. This very dynamic situation in that that was the procedure yesterday, which changed today, and then they changed. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was the procedure at 10 a.m., Jim. What? It's like noon. Come on. That's the thing I felt <laughs> so bad for you was the notion of how do you write a, a guidebook for something uh, that is changing every day? All I can say is thank God for the track changes uh, in Microsoft. In, in Word. Microsoft Word, exactly. Because I did so many, you know, I there were times where I would rewrite a page and then two days later go back and figure out that I had to revert all those changes and redo it. My, the bane of my existence was the Hot Dog Hall of Fame. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they originally, they sold themselves on, well, we have this specific hot dog from here and this kind yeah. of software from there this is and over the, to, in city walk right came. yeah and then the pandemic came and they reopened and it's like nathan's 
Nathan's for everything. It's all Nathan's. Yeah. And then gradually they started bringing back this particular specialty and this particular. So I must have rewritten that entry so many times. And I swear the day after I sent the final, final, final copy had to get, you know, put on ink and dead trees today. Yeah. The next day they reverted their menu right back to the original. All over. <laughs> like, it's cursed so new hot dogs of fame. So, you know, that's, that's the disadvantage. Um, thankfully, uh, that's why Touring Plans and Unofficial Guide work so well together because uh, you guys can keep stuff uh, electronically updated uh, yeah. even after a book has gone to print. You mentioned the, uh, you mentioned the track changes in Word. I actually had to turn it off. Because I, I couldn't, I couldn't read the text. It was just with, all yellow. It was all red. It was all red. Yeah, red and yellow. Like I, I just needed to turn it off and figure. Like I, I yeah, it, uh, it got to be uh, too much for some of those things. And then, and then next year is going to be just as much fun because everything's going to have to. Hopefully, hopefully everything is going to come back to normal, and a lot of this stuff can go back out. But I, I'm hoping, th- I'm hoping a few of these changes stick around. I am all about socially distanced parking lots. Yeah, I, I'm very like happy about not slamming my car door into the person next to me when I get out. Like I'm okay with the socially distant character greetings. I think the lack of parades, and especially in the Disney parks, I mean, I, I like the cavalcades better. There's a lot of stuff here that I, you know, I'd be okay with if it if it stuck around. Yeah, I don't need to go back to the old normal. Uh, we can have something in between the new normal and the and the old normal. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 some stuff that we could get out of this that might be that might be better, right? Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you uh, this question: What are your uh, for our listeners? What are your top three tips for getting the most out of a visit to Universal Orlando if they're going like in the next six months? Like, should they stay on site? Yes, I I would say especially now that Endless Summer Dockside and Surfside has opened. Uh, these are the value resorts, right? These are their value resorts, and these are really competitive. Not just competitive with Disney's on site hotels, but I'm saying competitive with chain motels along i drive Hmm. Uh, you know you can get rooms for around 80 bucks a night which is undercutting you know even undercutting something like art of animation or or pop century and the amenities are i think are much better than disney's lowest level of resort you know you've you've got nice facilities you've got a great food court that's reasonably priced and I've timed the buses. Uh, if you go to the unofficial guides YouTube page, you can actually watch POV. Uh, it takes you, you want a bus? Exactly seven minutes. Seven minutes. Yeah, yeah. that's right. I timed it at two. All right, cool. Yeah, <laughs> and and that is with hitting all of the red lights. All the lights. Yeah, yeah. 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 I so did the same I, thing. You, I mean, you can't get from the contemporary to the Magic Kingdom in seven minutes. No. So um, yeah, for that price point, I really don't see uh, a point in staying off-site. And once you're staying on-site, um, you can take advantage of the early entry. Uh, right. Early entry is kind of like a mixed blessing because it's concentrated in, in one park most of the time and it's just the Harry Potter area. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get a flood of people and sometimes for you know the headliner ride, um, you can have a worse line during the early entry than you will during the rest of the day. But what you do get the chance to do is explore uh, like the interactive windows and the right. shop in the Harry Potter area while everyone else rushes right to that headliner ride. The area itself is usually uh, the best time other than right before closing for kind of relaxing and exploring it. 
and it really, you know, even if you do, if you can have the discipline to line up like even 45 minutes or so before early entry starts, like I did it uh, during the holiday period and I was able to do uh, Hagrid's um, Hippogriff Forbidden Journey and get on uh, Incredible Hulk all within the first hour of the day. Oh, that's so, so if you, yeah, if you take advantage of that early entry and you're there for the start of it, uh, it can be a big advantage. And the last thing I'd say is if you've got the money for it, staying mm-hmm. in one of those top three on-site hotels, the, the Portofino, the Hard Rock, or the Royal Pacific, it, it comes with uh, unlimited express passes. And yeah. I would say do the math. If you've got four people in your room, uh, most times the hotel room is less expensive than buying express passes for four people. Yep, that's a great tip. Yeah. And the, if, if you can't afford the express passes... When they bring them back, look into the single rider lines. Uh, single rider lines are suspended for right now because of social distancing. I'm sure that someday those are going to return. And when they are, they're like the best kept secret at Universal. There are times like the Forbidden Journey line. There are times when uh, it's an hour posted wait and you can get on single rider in 10 minutes or less. Oh, that's fantastic. Cool. Well, thanks for the tips, Seth. Yeah. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including a second set of ideas that Disney came up with for the Land Pavilion back in the 1970s. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, LennetTurningPlans.com. Seth, where can people find more of you? <laughs> Thanks. Uh, you can find my personal account at skuberski and... You can also find us at the UG series or at theunofficialguides.com. Fantastic. And on next week's show, we're going to finish up the story of Disney's Vero Beach Resort. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's practicing his shot put, discus throws, and 200-meter hurdling over really big fish for the Sturgeon Olympics on Saturday, February 13th at the Thelma Sadoff Center for the Arts on Main Street in beautiful downtown Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. While Aaron is doing that, please go into iTunes and Raider Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim and Seth, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.